We're going to be in Acts 2. We're finishing up the rest of of Peter's message that he uh, preaches at Pentecost. But I have a question as we're going there. We're going to be in verse 22. What gives you the right to ruin someone's life? What gives us, what gives you, what gives me the right to ruin someone's life? And by that I mean that you would give them news that would utterly destroy them. It would just completely turn upside down their world, everything that they've believed, everything that they've understood, everything that they've ever thought. Several of you are familiar, you maybe read the play, you watched the movie, The Miracle Worker with Helen Keller and Anne Sullivan. And if you're not familiar with the story, uh, Helen Keller, it's not just a story, it's, a, it's true, true life. Uh, Helen Keller was born both, well not born, she became very early in her life, both blind and deaf. And Anne Sullivan's the worker that comes alongside and helps her, but there's an element Anne, who gave you the right to tell Helen she's blind and deaf? Can you imagine you're going through life and you find out that everyone around you can do things that are not accessible to you? That it just flips the whole world for her? There's an element where you're like, that's cruel if you don't have a solution. What gave her the right to do that? Well, you know the story, it's because there was so much better that would come out of it. In our passage this morning, Peter's going to give them some devastating news. They're in a place right now, the Jews, we're going to look at the setting in a little bit, the the Jews are pretty happy. There's some good news. And yet, before he gives them the best news, he points to the worst news. And we can ask, what gives him the right to ruin their day? What gives him the right to to do this to them? But what we're going to see is because he has something so much better for them. Let's look at these first verses, starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And we'll continue in a little bit. Let's remember a little bit the setting that we're at in this passage. This is part two of what we started last week. Um, Last week, we talked about Pentecost when the power of the Holy Spirit was given, where we could see this incredible pivotal moment in which believers received the Holy Spirit, in which the presence of God was placed on them and in them, and it did not consume them. It's an incredible moment that launches a powerful movement. And all of this crowd of people gathers because they hear this sound. The first sound they hear is this rushing wind. And it's all of these people from every known nation of the world, from the ends of the earth, they're all here in Jerusalem because of Pentecost. All of these, both the Jews and the proselytes, those who, are, who have converted to Judaism, they're all here. And first they hear this sound of rushing wind and then they hear something they can't explain. They say, see people speaking in every language. 
they can understand them in their native language from where they grew up. And they're like, what's going on? How can we explain this? Some of them have this wild theory that, that maybe they're drunk. And Peter stands up and, and gives a defense. He says, we're not drunk. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy. What prophecy? The prophecy of Joel. And Peter goes into this prophecy and he says, look, in the last days, in this period, this era that we are in, in the last days, the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out. But not just to a select few, as we saw in the Old Testament, it's to the sons and the daughters. To the old men and the young men. Even to the slaves, God is going to pour out his spirit on the last days. And you're going to know that because of the signs and wonders that you're going to see. And then he says, and then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, if you're one of the Jews, devout men, as our passage is going to say, a devout, one of the devout men, you're in Jerusalem. How does that prophecy strike you? Bad news, good news. Good news. Let's try it again. Bad news, good news. It's good news. Okay, the Holy Spirit, hey, the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on you. And it's happening right now. What Joel said is happening before your very eyes. What does that mean for Israel? They're excited. Yes, this is finally happening. Yes, all those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that good news? Do the Jews understand the good news? Not completely. And Peter is going to show them, wait a second, you can't comprehend this good news until I tell you the worst news. You need to reframe how you're thinking about the events that happened 53 days ago. You need to understand what happened 50 days ago so you can understand what's happening right now in your presence. What Peter does then is proclaim Christ. He begins by revealing the truth of who Jesus was and is. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. It's not a question whether or not Jesus did signs and wonders. But what, how did people explain, those who did not accept Christ for who he was, how did they explain the way Jesus did those signs and wonders? What did they say? Oh, you, you, you have a demon. Beelzebub's inside of you, the prince of demons. That's how you're doing these signs and wonders. What Peter is doing is, is he's, if we were in a trial and all of the evidence, all of the justification of someone's actions is built on one fact and then you say, wait a second, that's not true, the entire argument comes tumbling down. What is the argument? What is the foundation, the justification the Jews have for what they did 53 days ago with the crucifixion of Christ? He's a blasphemer. 
He said he was God. You're not allowed to say that. He, he was making these things. He was doing, he, he's not who he says he is. We need to kill him. We need to kill him before this is too late. We need to kill him before Rome takes away what little liberty we have. We are justified in doing that because the punishment for blasphemy is death. So then what is that one thing, the, 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 the keystone, that if you take out, the whole structure comes tumbling down? What if Jesus really was who he said he was? What if God, in fact, sent him. Peter knows his audience. He's speaking to these Jews and he's focusing in on this key element. One of the things that we're going to see throughout this passage is how much everything is connected back to the Father. It's almost surprising as you read it because everything that Christ did, what Peter's demonstrating is here, it's the Father who did it. Now, we want to be careful because we might read this, and, and if you have a different theological tradition, you might say, oh, see, this, what this is saying is that Jesus isn't really God. That's, that's what saying he, it's saying here, because a man attested by God, God, the Father made him Lord and Christ. Well, well, this is showing that Christ isn't actually divinity. No, because the entire reason they killed him was because he claimed to be divine. What Peter is demonstrating is, listen, if, I were to, if Peter just stood up and said, hey, Jesus was in fact God, well, let's kill you too. Blasphemy. But if Peter says, no, wait a second, all of this was something that the Father himself did, then wait a second, if we're disagreeing with this, we're disagreeing with the Father. He's putting down this foundation and he's pulling out the structure, the foundation of their entire argument, the justification of what they've done. Men of Israel, hear these words. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders. How did those happen? That God did through him. As you know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I want us to notice here, it's all according to the Father's plan. How often have we already seen that in Acts no obstacle overcomes the Father's plan in establishing Christ's kingdom through the Spirit's power as we proclaim Christ. That's what we're going to see in Acts. But right here, what we're seeing is this is all according to the Father's plan. Now, if you're one of the Jews and, and, one of, and you're listening to all this and the foundation that you've been standing on is I am justified in the crucifixion of Christ because of blasphemy that he said, if Peter pulls that out, what's the implication? I'm guilty of murdering the Son of God. And it's not just an implication. It is a very clear proclamation. Look what he says. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You are guilty. Now, we might think and look at that and say, well, wait a second. Some of these people were traveling. Some of these people might not have even been in Jerusalem at that point. It doesn't matter. It's still a true statement. This statement is not 
um, just something that was only something that Peter could say at this time to this specific group. It was only because he was in Jerusalem and it was literally these people. That's what makes this statement true. No. Peter could say, make this statement in any time, in any place, because that is the result of our sin. This Jesus whom you crucified. Because then he says, by what? By the hands of lawless men. The lawless men are the Romans. They didn't have the law like Jews did. He says, you did it through them. Yeah, they were the ones that actually held the nail. They were the ones that swung the hammer. They were the ones who wielded the whip. And yet you are the one who bears the blame. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What do you think the mood and tone is right now for this crowd? Just a little bit ago, whoa, look at all these people. We're not sure if it's something like amazing or if we're supposed to be laughing. Like, is this actually God doing this or are they just drunk? We're not really sure, but it's interesting. Let's see, sit around and watch for a while. Oh, wait. Oh no, this is a prophetic fulfillment of what God said would happen. Awesome. 180. This Jesus, whom you crucif crucified. This first part that Paul, uh, Peter does is, is revealing humanity's guilt. And he's going to come back to that in, in verse 36. But see, what I want us to understand, what, what we need to, our response to this is that we must realize our guilt. We're not going to look for the solution. We're not going to long for salvation if we don't realize our guilt and condemnation. Yeah, there is good news. That's what the gospel means. It's good news. But it starts with the worst news. In a room this size, statistically speaking, there are some of you here who have not yet come to that realization. You have not yet come to the point of realizing your guilt in the death of Christ. And, and we, we have these statements of all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from wrath. We need to start here to see what we truly need. But, but you, it, again, we know many of you have already realized that. And you might think, well, this is just a message for those who have not yet come to this point. I can kind of do my own thing. I don't need to dwell in this. And, and, and I just want to say that so often we are guilty of spiritual entitlement. We completely forgot where we came from. And we get to this point that says, no, I, I deserve more. I deserve better. I deserve the power. I deserve the comfort. I deserve all of these other things. And we forget, wait a second, we deserve nothing good. We deserve everything that comes with wrath. What we need to get to is getting to the point where we constantly remember. And that doesn't mean that we're going and we're always living in this anguish and shame and guilt and fear. No, because what Christ did on the cross takes away our guilt, erases the shame, removes the fear. That doesn't mean we forget it. The reason we remember it is because it produces so much joy in remembering. 
It gives us the right perspective. Wait a second, that's who I was. I once was lost. I once was dead, but God. And that's where the next part goes. Christ's glorification, because the story is not over. While humanity is responsible, God remains in control. That's one of the tensions that we're going to see in this passage. And you need both of these elements. If you look at these first verses, what do we see? Who's responsible? Yes. We are responsible. But wait a second, it said it was according to God's plan. Yeah, that's the tension. And you need both. Because if we're not responsible, we don't need salvation. But if God didn't plan it, he's not in control. You need both of these elements, both of this tension that says, yes, it is because of our actions, we bear the guilt of Christ's death. But this was according to the Father's plan because there's something greater. The best news comes after the worst news. So let's get to some of that good news. Moving on, let's go to verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Uh, There's an incredible three-part statement there. First, God raised him up. The father was not just involved in the death of Christ. He was involved in the resurrection of Christ. The glorification we're going to be talking about here has two parts. It's both Christ's resurrection and his ascension, exaltation. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Now, I'm just going to ask a question. How many of you used the term pang this last week? It's pain. It's the birth pains. He loosed, this is the imagery from from the Psalms, where death was personified as something that would wrap you up and bind you so that you are totally captive to the pain of death. And what is the pain of death? It is the eternal, final, damnable separation from God. It's what was proclaimed in the garden. On the day you eat of it, you shall die. They ate the fruit and the cords of death enveloped them and they were tied up in the pangs of death. The pain of death was there forever linked with humanity's story until Christ the man attested to you by God who comes and he goes through death. He is bound on a cross, but those cords were loosed. No longer to hold him. Why? It was not possible for him to be held by it. That's a statement that needs an amen. (laughs) for it was not possible for him to be held by it. Here's Christ, the Son of God, 
God himself, totally God, totally man, who comes and gives himself, who is crucified by lawless and sinful men, but it was according to God's plan. And here, in the thing that no man has ever conquered, our greatest foe, our greatest enemy, that Hebrews 2 says he needed to be subjected because we were enslaved to death. Christ himself went through death so that we might be freed from death. And it starts here with Christ. It could not hold him. I think one of the the really fun elements of this is, is just to even think through the progression for Peter. Where was Peter 53 days ago? Peter was denying this. Where was Peter before that in the passage that Pastor Billy uh, took us in Luke 9, where where Jesus, he sees Christ and and the glory on the mountain and and he sees all of that. And then what does Jesus say? I'm going to die. And, And Peter rebukes him, says, no, no, you're not. And now what's Peter saying here? It was not possible for death to hold him. This is just a, a, a side comfort. There's so many times where we look and we say, I, I'm just not growing. And there's so much, and I'm looking at, at this long journey and this path of life, and, and we, we think, ah, there's just no way. Look at the story, the progression for Peter to go from denying Christ three times to now standing in the, the temple and proclaiming to his countrymen and saying, nothing could hold Christ. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we have. And so if you're thinking, ah, I'm never going to get there, the Spirit can take you there. He can cause that growth to happen. But let's continue because what Peter then offers is another evidence. He first gives the evidence of God himself. God did this and Christ did this. Now he's going to give the evidence of, of, of David because he's going to point to this prophecy. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Now, it's always somewhat difficult when, when we're using Old Testament and we're bringing that forward and trying to see, but, but Peter offers us the explanation right here. Because when we're looking at this and we say, wait a second, and this is, the Jews at that time had a hard time understanding this psalm. What's happening here? He's quoting from Psalm 16. What is David talking about? And, and because there's elements that don't make sense. What do you mean you're not going to see corruption? Meaning decay. That the body, when we go through death, we see that corruption. It eats away at our body. We will not dwell in Hades, in the pit, in the place of death. Well, wait a second. That doesn't really fit with David. Look what Peter says. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. What's that mean? This can't be about David. So what's happening? Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. And let's just stop there. Who's worthy to sit on the throne? It's not any descendant. 
It's not just something like, oh yeah, I mean, I liked your dad, your great-grandfather, sure, why don't you take the throne? You're not worthy. Knowing that there would be one worthy to sit on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This is about Jesus. Here's the good news. What we did, what we are guilty of, didn't break the plan. We didn't mess it up. It wasn't one of those things where we're like, okay, for since the very beginning when God gave that glimmer of hope and said, look, there's one who's coming who will crush the head of the serpent. We didn't break that, even though we're guilty of killing the one who was promised. No, God raised him up. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and here's the third witness, right? It's not only the work that God did. It's not only what David prophesied about. It's what we've seen. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. See, this resurrection reveals God's power. We don't have power to mess up what God did according to the foreknowledge of his plan. But it doesn't just stop at the resurrection. The glorification continues with the ascension. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The resurrection reveals that God conquers death. The ascension reveals that the sacrifice was accepted. Sin has been paid for. Because what if he came back to life, but just stayed here? Which is what the disciples wanted. But then there's the question, wait a second. Are you allowed back? Are you allowed back in the throne room of God? Are you allowed to be in his presence once more after you took on our sins, after you took them to the cross? Does this mean that you are forever exiled out of God's presence? That would be a, a reasonable question if Christ remained. But he was exalted. The Father welcomed him back. It's finished. It's paid. Come back. This is the exaltation. This is why we so often bring the, the exaltation and we don't consider the theological significance of it. And yet in Acts, we're going to keep seeing that proclaimed. And it's the main theme. Luke finishes the gospel of Luke with it and he begins Acts with the exaltation. He talks about this ascension. Why? Because not only did he conquer death, he paid in full for the sins. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This is where we're coming back full circle. What started this whole conversation? The Holy Spirit seeing what was happening. Then Paul, uh, Peter went into the prophecy and said, on these last days, this timeline, this period, he is going to pour out the Holy Spirit. What did Christ say that he would do? I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
I will pour it out on you. How? Because he is with the Father. He is in perfect communion. It is according to the Father's plan. This is what's happening. This is, let me explain why you're seeing these people speaking in tongues. Because, not because, oh, well, the Spirit is just being poured out. No, because it all comes back to Jesus. Because of the work that Christ did. He gives another prophecy in verse 34. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's accepted. Come, come be with me. Come be in this place. We will rule over this until your enemies are your footstool. See, this is what we need to do here is we're recognizing God's power. Can we disrupt God's plan? No. When we've talked about no obstacle can overcome the Father's plan, can you think of maybe something that on a human level we would think, I don't know, that seems like a pretty big obstacle. How about killing the Messiah? Seems like a pretty big obstacle. But what does he do? He reveals his power. No obstacle is going to get in the way. You think, yes, you're guilty of this, but do you think that this is stopping my plan? No, it's accomplishing my plan. What you meant for evil, I used for good. See, the response for us in this section is to recognize God's power. His power as we see the resurrection, his power that we see the ascension. But, but I want to say very specifically here, I use the word recognize, not rejoice recognize his power. Is this power a cause for joy? That depends. What is the last statement of the prophecy? Until I make what? Your enemies, your footstool. Until they are beneath your feet. Now, if you're hearing this, you're one of the Jews there. What category do you think you're in if someone just told you you killed the Messiah? What category are we in if we are guilty of murdering the Son of God and he says, I'm, you're going to come with me until I make your enemies your footstool? Should we assume we're all friends of God? That's a dangerous assumption. What we should assume is that we are the enemies that are going to be placed under his feet because we're guilty of his death. And that's where he goes. He hammers the point home with verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know what? For certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He doesn't relieve the pressure at all. He leans into it. Let all the house of Israel know two elements. One, Jesus was who he said he was. There's a little bit of a confusing statement here for us in English where it says this Jesus that God, God, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And, and, and there's a false theology which is adoptionism which is that Christ became the Messiah, meaning that God was looking and he was like, okay, you know what? I choose you, Jesus. 
I'm, I'm going to let you do this. No, this was always according to the plan. So why use this word, he made him Lord and Christ? And, and these terms, Lord and Christ, are, have both a, a Gentile significance and a Jewish significance. Lord, he's king. Christ, he's Messiah. Well, let me explain a little bit this, this made term. If you were appointed to be a champion on someone else's behalf, of like, hey, uh, it's a schoolyard fight, which I don't recommend, um, but you decide, you know what, I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm, not, I'm not very good at this type of thing. Let, let, me, let me ask someone else to be my champion, to, to, to protect me. At what point are they truly, do they deserve the title of champion? Right when you appoint them or when? When they've done it. That's what this is pointing to. He has made him the Messiah. He has made him Lord, not because it was like, okay, I guess we're going to do this, but because it's now been accomplished. The fact that he is raised from the dead, the fact that he is exalted, it finished what he said he was going to do. It made him Lord and Messiah. Not because he wasn't already chosen to be those things, but before they were finished, there was still looking forward to. We're not looking forward to that anymore. It's done. He is Lord and Messiah. And this is what Peter wants them to know. Let all of Israel know that the one who died was the promised Messiah. Let all of them know he is Lord. And lest you forget this Jesus whom you crucified. You know what's surprising? That's where he finishes his message. I'm not going to do that this morning. <laughs> but it's significant that that's where he ends. So often we want to jump straight to the good news, but if we don't understand the worst news, we'll never receive the best news. We need to understand this is the reality. We need to understand and recognizing God's power is not necessarily a comfort. And they got it. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Do you see the language here? They get it. Wait a second. This is a total emotional whiplash. We've been waiting for this. We've been planning for this arrival. We've been, we've been faithful. We're here in Jerusalem because we're trying to be devout. We're trying to follow God's law. We're trying to do everything right. We're here, aren't we? But you're saying we're guilty of his death? You might think, no, Stephen, you don't understand. I'm a good person. I, I, I try to be kind to people. If you put my life on a scale, my good works are, seem more than my bad works. But what does Paul say? Our good works are filthy rags. Stephen, you don't understand. I, I, I've done everything. I've tried to be pleasing by God. It's not enough. 
if you're visiting with us today or, or if you're still figuring this out and you're thinking, man, this guy's really angry. I'm not. Talk to other people. Trust, trust their, well, maybe not everyone, some people. Um, why are we doing this? Because we need to understand the worst news. We need to understand, wait a second, it would be wrong to leave us in that condition. It's not kindness to leave people in their blissful ignorance if that blissful ignorance causes them to spend eternity in hell. I would be doing you a disservice to leave you in that place. What gives me the right to ruin your day? Because I have something that can make your eternity. And I'd rather ruin today than see you spend eternity in hell. And so what we have here is that they have reached that conclusion. Peter, what do we do? Peter, what do we do? And that's the question we need to be asking. And Peter gives them the invitation. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. The direction you were going is a direction of condemnation. You are already in a place where you are guilty of his death. Repent. Turn away from it. Be baptized. The imagery here is to become a new person. It's to place your faith in Jesus. What was the end of Joel? Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who is that name? Who is that Lord? It's Jesus. Call on Jesus. Turn away. The baptism is the external sign of that internal reality. You have been made a new creation. Be baptized into his death. Be brought out in his resurrection. Proclaim the new life that resides in you. And you will, what? Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is where we started. This gift is also for you. Because look at what it says in 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What? A promise. This is the good news. This is the news we've been waiting for. This is the best news. It is the greatest news. It is the greater grace that follows the greatest guilt. But we need to start with the guilt. If we don't understand the greatest guilt, we will never receive the greater grace. And so he says, yeah, you have a problem. Repent. Place your faith in Jesus. And here's the result. You'll receive the Holy Spirit. The dwelling of God can dwell on you and not consume you. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. What's our response? Repent of our sins. Place our faith in Jesus. We repent. We turn away from it. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. This isn't going to be popular. 
The good news here is not that then, and then you're going to get everything you've ever wanted. And then you're going to have this awesome power like you see here. And then all of these other things. And then give the wish list. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You can ask for whichever one you want. That's not the promise. The promise is you will never bear the weight of the guilt that you have right now. You will be able to be in my presence the way that Christ was exalted. The resurrection that we see in Christ, the exaltation that we see in Christ, that then is offered to you even though you are guilty of the worst of crimes. I was thinking about this earlier this week. If there was, if you were to stand trial, a surprise trial, and find out that you were guilty of something, uh, probably the worst thing that could be, you could be accused of would be crimes against humanity. Uh, back in Nuremberg, Germany, uh, Nuremberg, when, when they had these different trials for Nazis and crimes, and, and this term started becoming more popular, crimes against humanity. You have done the most atrocious of actions. And for many of us, there is no worse crime. A crime against humanity is as bad as you can get. And we're seeing here, nope, it's not. There's one worse. There's crimes against divinity. And that's what we're guilty of. But there's grace. The grace that is greater than all our sin. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And we see the salvation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Rejoice in your salvation. We don't need to stay in the dark place. The glorious light has come. Uh, one of the truths that, that I think we need to see here, though, is, is, is you need to notice this. If you're here and you have not gone through this, those, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, those who received his word, this is not a universal pro uh, promise. It's a universal offer. He is offering this. But we cannot think that, oh, well, no, eventually everyone's just going to go to heaven. It's, it's, you know, because Jesus said, no, who goes? Who receives this? Those whom the Lord our God calls to himself, those who received his word. Again, that tension. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Those whom God called to himself, those who received. And this is where it meets together. So what gives us the right? Well, if you're here and, and I'm, I've ruined your day, I have hope for you. And I'm, it's going to sound wrong, I, I'm glad I did ruin your day. Because it needed to be ruined in order for it to be made. There's a greater promise. But if you're here and your day has already been made, your eternity has already been secured, rejoice in this. Re realize your guilt. Don't get past that. Don't forget it. Recognize God's power. Repent of your sins and then rejoice in your salvation. It's no kindness to leave people in their blissful ignorance if that ignorance causes them to spend eternity in hell. This is our big idea. Though we are guilty of Christ's death, God graciously provides salvation through Christ.
That is a promise that we can rest in. That is a promise we can rejoice. Though we are guilty of Christ's death, God graciously provides salvation 